1: When Claudia Brenner and Rebecca White set out on a camping trip in May of 1988, they were looking for peace, serenity, and maybe a little bit of privacy for their blossoming romance. But what they got instead was a nightmare. This is Monsters. Claudia and Rebecca met when they were both students at Virginia Tech. Rebecca was working towards her master's in business administration while Claudia was enrolled in an architecture degree. This isn't one of those love-at-first-sight stories. When the women met, Claudia had just come out of a nine-year relationship and she wasn't looking to get into something new. Rebecca wasn't looking for anything either because she was in a committed relationship with her long-term male partner. For Rebecca and Claudia, those early days were purely platonic. While they enjoyed seeing each other around campus, it didn't happen often and it was nearly always in the company of their wider group of friends. It wasn't that Claudia didn't find Rebecca attractive. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Rebecca's mother was Puerto Rican and her father was Iranian. The mix of ethnicities gave her dark skin, dark eyes, and long dark hair, all of which were endearing features to Claudia. But while Claudia had grown up knowing that she was gay, Rebecca was very clearly a straight woman. And so, for two years, nothing happened between them. They were merely acquaintances who knew each other through mutual friends. A couple of years after that first meeting, Claudia heard through those same friends that Rebecca had separated from her partner. That seemed to be a turning point for them both because over the next few months, they bumped into each other more often. Then Claudia began to realize that whenever they were in a room together, she felt a kind of pull towards Rebecca. But no matter how attracted Claudia felt, she knew she would never make a move. That was for two reasons. First, Rebecca was straight, and second, even if she did happen to be bisexual or gay, Claudia didn't want to get tangled up in someone else's self-discovery journey, which she knew from personal experience could be painful and destabilizing. Despite all that internal dialogue, Claudia found her feelings for Rebecca intensifying. During one social gathering, she thought she must be going crazy when Rebecca seemed to be dropping hints and coming on to her. So she decided to ask a mutual friend whether Rebecca had mentioned anything or if it was all in her head. Unbeknownst to Claudia, just a few days earlier, Rebecca had gone to the same mutual friend and asked if she thought Claudia would ever be interested in her. With the mutual friend playing matchmaker, Claudia asked Rebecca out to the movies the very next day. During their date, Rebecca confessed that she had a crush on Claudia, and Claudia reassured her that the feeling was reciprocated. The next few months went by in a bit of a blur, with friends watching on as the pair fell deeply in love. But there were still their college degrees to consider, and when Claudia was offered a research fellowship in Israel, the couple agreed to try out a long-distance relationship. They sent weekly letters to each other and spoke on the phone whenever they could, but the technology wasn't what it is today, and the distance took a toll on their relationship. Claudia was fully devoted to the relationship, but Rebecca was caught up in the struggle between her previous life as a heterosexual woman and her newly discovered queer identity. This was all going on in the early 1980s, and homophobia was a real and daily experience for lesbian women, more so than today. While Claudia had known she was gay since childhood and surrounded herself with a safe community of non-judgmental friends, for Rebecca, the experience was both new and unsettling. While Claudia was overseas, she was left to muddle through the daily reality on her own. When Claudia returned to Ithaca, the couple sat down and talked about all that had gone on in the six months that they were apart. With some time and space, Rebecca had come to terms with the fact that she was a lesbian. With Claudia as her number one supporter, Rebecca became louder and prouder about it and she started to come out to trusted friends and family. When the dust settled, the women agreed that they wanted to make their relationship work. When it was Rebecca's turn to choose the location of her doctoral program in 1988, the couple settled on Pennsylvania to start their new life together. Before they settled down, though, they decided to go on a two-night hike along the Appalachian Trail in the Michaud State Forest in Pennsylvania. Rebecca had loved being outdoors for as long as anyone could remember. Claudia appreciated nature, but being outside overnight wasn't exactly her idea of a good time. Still, she knew that relationships take compromise, and seeing the joy on her partner's face would more than make up for her discomfort. They had gone on a number of hikes before, so they weren't too worried about the terrain, and the weather forecast for the dates they chose looked promising as well. Claudia and Rebecca decided that rather than carrying all their gear deep into the woods, they would hike to their campsite, set up their equipment, and use that as a base for some smaller day hikes. They had already planned that they would take a route which forked off from the main Appalachian Trail in hopes that it would be a bit more private. They brought two vehicles, one that would be parked where they planned to enter the trail and the other where they planned to finish. That way, they could explore new sections of the trail without having to backtrack. On the afternoon of Thursday, May 12th, 1988, they met in the parking lot, unpacked their gear and dropped off the other vehicle at the exit. It was only later that the name of that parking lot was revealed, Dead Woman's Hollow. The story goes that in 1917, a woman had gotten bitten by a rattlesnake in the area, and it took three days for anyone to find her dead body. How's that for foreboding? Initially, the hike went just as they planned. They followed the main trail for a short distance until they found the Birch Run shelters where they planned to stay for the night. The facilities at the campsite were pretty basic and consisted of a single toilet and a three-sided lean-to. Many hikers used the sights along the trail, but Rebecca and Claudia wanted more privacy, so they were pleased to find that the camp was deserted. After walking around for a few minutes, they chose to set up their tent off to the side of the main area and out of sight of the wooden lean-to. When the tent was up, they cooked a meal on their little cooker and zipped their sleeping bags together. That night, as they drifted off to sleep, Rebecca told Claudia that she wanted to see if the camp had a logbook. She had heard all about the fun stories and advice hikers would leave for each other and she wanted to write in one before they left. When they awoke on Friday, May 13th, they made breakfast together and enjoyed the warmth coming from the rising sun as it hit their naked bodies. They were a newly in love couple, enjoying the freedom of their natural bodies in an isolated area. When Claudia went down to the stream to wash up, Rebecca went to the outhouse to see if she could find a logbook to write in, but what she found was something altogether more disturbing. When she opened the outhouse door, she looked straight into the eyes of a fellow hiker, or so she thought. The man said a friendly hello, but his body language said something else. The man was clothed, but he had a visible erection under his track pants. It was clear to Rebecca that the man had watched her walk to the bathroom and had waited for her to finish. Rebecca was embarrassed about the situation, and she told the man she thought they were alone. The man brushed it off and said he had arrived late at night, and then he asked Rebecca for a cigarette. Rebecca told him that she didn't smoke and she hustled back to their tent to tell Claudia that they needed to get dressed right away. When Rebecca told Claudia about her strange interaction with the guy at the campsite, they decided to pack up their belongings and move to a different area. The guy had given them the creeps and they figured it would be better to move on rather than stay in the same place for another night. As they walked out of the site, they spotted the guy and everyone mumbled a simple see you later. Thirty minutes into their hike, the women stopped to check where they were on the map. They were sharing a couple of playful kisses when they heard a voice say, quote, You're lost already? As they turned around, they realized the voice belonged to the same guy from the campsite. But this time, it wasn't only his creepy voice or body language that freaked them out. He was now carrying a rifle over his shoulder. Add to that the fact that he must have been following them since they left the campsite, and the whole scenario took an ominous turn. Both women immediately got chills down their spines. Claudia snapped back, quote, no, are you? And they turned down a fork in the trail, which led in the opposite direction from where they had come. Both women were unsettled by the strange interaction, and they kept checking behind them as they walked. The feeling that they were being followed had subsided by noon, and they began to look for a spot to make camp. There was plenty of sunlight left in the day, but they wanted to stop and enjoy their time together, not spend the whole day hiking. Plus, they were still carrying all their heavy camping gear. By the early afternoon, they found a spot by a stream that seemed the perfect place to set up for the night. The ground was covered in thick moss, which was almost like a soft carpet under their feet. Just a few feet away from the moss was a gentle flowing stream. It was like something out of a fairy tale. Blue sky, warm sun, soft moss, a gentle breeze and the gurgling stream. They rolled out their sleeping bags but decided to leave the tent until later. Then Claudia made some iced tea and they shared a block of chocolate. When they were more relaxed, they started kissing and Rebecca took her pants off before they started to roll around together. It was whimsical, idyllic, perfect, right up until the moment it turned deadly. Out of nowhere, the world exploded. Claudia's first thought was that the earth was shaking and there must be an earthquake. But then Rebecca screamed, Where did you get shot, Claudia? In an instant, the same sensation came again and then again, all before Claudia had the ability to process what was going on. It seemed to take forever for her to register that she was being shot at, but the reality was that less than 30 seconds had passed. She saw that the moss and their sleeping bags were covered in blood, and she realized that her body was shielding Rebecca. With relief, she realized that her partner was safe, but all that changed when Rebecca screamed at Claudia to get behind the tree. She rolled over and made a run for it with Rebecca right behind her, but just as Rebecca lunged for the protection of the trunk, she took two bullets. Claudia fell to the ground with Rebecca in her arms. Rebecca was bleeding, a lot, and she was barely moving. She told Claudia that she needed to stop the bleeding, but there was nothing they could use and Claudia realized she needed to get to their bags. They were still petrified that their shooter was lingering out there in the woods, just waiting for them to come back into sight. But soon the desire to live overtook the fear and Claudia shot out from behind the trees and made a run to their packs. She grabbed what she could and ran back to Rebecca. To her relief, no more shots were fired. Claudia attempted to stop the blood that seemed to be pouring out of Rebecca's head, but no matter what she did, it kept flowing. She knew that Rebecca would die if she didn't get help, but that meant either Rebecca had to walk out of the forest, or Claudia had to leave her behind. It was a heart-wrenching decision, but with Rebecca fading out of consciousness more with every passing second, there wasn't really a choice to be made at all. Claudia gathered up anything that her traumatized mind could think she might need as she headed back into the forest, alone. Claudia didn't know it yet, but her marathon journey had just begun. The walk out of the forest was steep and unforgiving, but Claudia was driven by a singular desire to get help for Rebecca, and she was determined not to let her down. The whole time that she was walking, Claudia was struggling to breathe and she couldn't swallow. Her mouth would fill with blood, and as soon as she spat it out, it would refill again. Her arm ached like it was on fire, and she could hear a gurgling sound coming from her neck. Then there was the persistent fear that seemed to walk alongside her. The fear that at every bend or turn, she would come face to face with the man who had shot them. But none of that could dampen her determination to get help for Rebecca. Eventually, Claudia made it to the end of the trail and onto a state forest road. After looking at the map, she had decided she needed to get to Shippensburg Road, which was the most populated area for miles. There were two ways to get there, either the long way around or back through the forest. Unsurprisingly, there was no way Claudia was going back into the woods. When the sun went down completely, Claudia turned on her flashlight. She had been walking for three hours when she saw headlights up ahead and she jumped into the middle of the road to stop the vehicle. She was determined to convince whoever was in the car to take her to get help for Rebecca. Thankfully, the car slowed down and two teenage boys rolled down their windows. When Claudia told them they had to help her, they opened their door and welcomed her inside. Together, they drove the 15 minutes it took to get to the local police station. During the drive, she repeated her name and her story over and over again just in case she lost consciousness and they had to tell the police how to find Rebecca. At the station, Claudia recounted her story again. Then she took out her map and showed the officers exactly where they could find Rebecca. But there was something unbelievable about Claudia's story. The place she had marked on the map was more than four miles from where she had been picked up, and given the state of her face and the terrible sounds coming from her lungs and throat, They weren't sure how she could have made such a long walk. But Claudia was convincing, and she refused to accept any medical treatment until she was sure searchers were out looking for Rebecca. When they assured her that search teams were heading into the mountains, Claudia finally agreed to be seen by paramedics. As soon as they saw her, she was put in the back of an ambulance and taken with lights and sirens to the local hospital within an hour of being seen by an ear nose and throat specialist claudia was airlifted to hershey medical center claudia didn't know it then but her injuries were life-threatening she had spent so much of her energy fighting for rebecca to be found that she hadn't quite connected the dots about what had happened to her she had been shot and not just once or twice there was a bullet through her arm through her neck and through her face and that was just the start of it the extent of her injuries and the damage to her face and neck meant that doctors couldn't tell exactly how many times she had been shot, or whether the bullets had come out the other side. So Claudia was forced to swallow dye while doctors watched on monitors to see where her blood flowed. While Claudia went through countless tiny but painful and invasive procedures, she clung on to the belief that Rebecca would have been found and taken for treatment by then. She knew that Rebecca had been struggling to breathe when she left, but she assured herself that humans have two lungs and maybe if one is damaged, the other one could still sustain life long enough for help to arrive. After the dye imaging, Claudia was told she needed surgery immediately. In that moment, she should have been focused on her own mortality, but instead she had to tell the doctor that she didn't have insurance. It's an unfortunate reality in the United States that, even when you've been shot multiple times by a madman in the woods, you have to worry about how you're going to pay for life-saving treatment. At 2 a.m., Claudia gave the hospital chaplain the phone numbers for her parents and closest friends, and then she was sedated and wheeled into surgery. The chaplain made contact with Claudia's parents and best friend and gave them the horrifying news. It was the middle of the night when they found out that Claudia had been shot and that her hiking companion was missing. The chaplain couldn't give any further information on the condition of either women except for to tell them that Claudia was about to go into surgery. Within half an hour of receiving the news, they were in a vehicle making the five-hour drive from Ithaca to Pennsylvania. In the operating theater, ear, nose, and throat specialists set to work repairing the hole in the back of Claudia's esophagus, or breathing tube, while others attempted to repair the damage to her tongue, cheeks, neck, face, and arm. Bullet fragments were found just millimeters from her spinal column, and others were removed from her mouth and throat. Ultimately, the doctors had found that Claudia had been shot five times, four of which had hit her in the head and neck. Claudia's family and friends arrived at the hospital moments before she was taken into recovery. The surgeon told them that the operation had been a success despite the fact that any one of the bullet fragments could have killed her had they been mere millimeters in any other direction. They were relieved to say the least, but they also wanted to know about Rebecca. Where was she and what were her injuries? That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and
1: conditions. 18 plus. Trooper Don Blevins was the man in charge of the search for Rebecca. Just an hour after Claudia had arrived at the station, he sent two eight-person search parties into the area she had indicated on the map. The teams were made up of EMTs, police officers, firefighters, and rangers, and they entered the forest five miles apart—one from the east and one from the west. The forest was pitch black, and the trail was impossible to make out in between the dense trees and occlusive canopy. Using high-powered flashlights, they picked their way through the woods towards the search area. Large sections of their path were uphill, and they had to climb over a number of fallen trees. Eventually, the two parties met in the middle. They still hadn't found the campsite, and so they turned around and retraced their steps back the way they had come, taking care to look in places they might have missed on their way in. An hour after entering the forest, Don's group found the campsite. He called out to the other searchers who gathered around the site and directed their lights towards the sleeping bag on the ground. In the darkness, there was no way to tell if the occupant was dead or alive. Don stepped towards the bag and knelt down to check Rebecca for a pulse. He found none. Don immediately declared the campsite a crime scene. While half of the searchers headed out of the woods, the other half stayed behind to secure the area. Three officers stayed with Rebecca's body all night. The news of Rebecca's death was relayed to investigators and then to the medical center where Claudia was being treated. In fact, Rebecca had been found before Claudia went into surgery, but the decision was made to wait for her to survive the operation before telling her what had happened. And so, it was Claudia's best friend who broke the news to her as she awoke from surgery. Claudia was already a shell of the person who had entered the forest the day before. Her skin was gray, and somehow it had lost all of the volume which held the skin off her bones. Her eyes were dull and looked like a dark hole of terror. But the news of Rebecca's death somehow made those features even more cadaverous. She was hooked up to a breathing tube with a multitude of other wires and cables connected to her body, but she still had the capacity to sob. Through her tears, she whispered to her best friend, quote, "'He saw us.'" Claudia knew instinctively who had shot them. She believed it was the man who they had seen earlier on the trail, the one who had an erection at the campsite and the one who was carrying a rifle. On the day Claudia came out of surgery and was told that Rebecca had died, she was visited by Don, the trooper who had found Rebecca and who was now in charge of the investigation. Claudia provided as much information as she could about the man in the woods and the moments before the shooting. But there was one thing she didn't tell him. In Claudia's own words, quote, I still said nothing about my relationship with Rebecca. I didn't even consider telling him. It was second nature to hide being a lesbian, especially from a police officer or any person with power over my life. My self-protection as a lesbian never stopped functioning even in the depths of this tragedy. While still bleeding, while they were the only help I had, I withheld from the police both my relationship with Rebecca and what I knew had been the motive for the attack. Far from feeling uncooperative, I withheld the information out of terror someone had just shot us for being lesbians why would i allow yet one more unknown man to know that fact the day after emerging from surgery claudia had recovered enough to be transferred out of the intensive care unit and into the acute critical care unit while there doesn't sound like much of a difference between the two wards there are limitations on how many visitors you can have Moving out of intensive care would mean that Claudia could only have friends and families with her during visiting hours, but by then, Claudia was petrified of being alone. If she hadn't already been confined to a hospital bed, she would have been immobilized by fear. Fear that the person who had shot her and killed Rebecca would come back for her. That day, she was diagnosed with PTSD and given an exemption from the visiting hours, meaning she was allowed to have someone with her at all times. A guard was also stationed outside of her room 24 hours a day. Meanwhile, back at the campsite where the women had been shot, officers were waiting until the sun came up to document the scene. When there was enough light, the area was photographed while forensic officers did a detailed scene investigation. They spread out fingertip to fingertip and combed through the entire area to identify anything that could be related to Rebecca's murder. 82 feet or 25 meters away from Rebecca's body, they found a jackknife, eight bullet casings, a pair of sunglasses, a knitted beanie covered with white fur, two cigarette lighters, and 25 unspent rounds of ammunition. The spot where the items were found almost looked like a little nest, a perfect spot for a killer to watch his prey. Sure enough, when Don lay on the ground where the items were, he could see the women's campsite through a little window of moss and underbrush. There was no doubt the women had been hunted. Now all they needed to do was identify the hunter. Most murders are carried out by someone who knows the victim, so naturally the investigation started with those closest to Rebecca and Claudia. But after hours and hours of questioning their friends, family, and colleagues, investigators were no closer to identifying somebody who would want to harm either of the women. For the most part, the people who the officers interviewed were forthcoming with information. Whenever they were asked about the true nature of the relationship between the women, however, everyone seemed to shut down. As the days ticked by, the hunt for the unidentified man intensified. The lack of an arrest heightened all of Claudia's fears and she became increasingly anxious and paranoid. She was incredibly suspicious of any unknown male that walked into the room, even porters and nurses. Each random passerby had the potential to be Rebecca's killer, which made her feel like a trapped animal. Three days after the attack, Claudia was moved again into a lower dependency ward and the 24-hour guard was removed. To help alleviate some of her fears, the hospital took great care to maintain her safety in other ways. Her wristband identified her as Jane Doe and additional security guards were placed on the floor where her room was located. Despite the new layers of protection, Claudia struggled to sleep and her paranoia was all-encompassing. At the same time, she was consumed by grief over Rebecca's murder. While many of us will lose someone unexpectedly at some stage in our lives, we're free to vocalize that pain or internalize it, to express it through tears or through silent reflection. But Claudia's grief was strangled by fear, and it wasn't only fear of the unknown monster who still roamed free. Claudia was grappling with another real fear, that the police might not take the investigation so seriously if they knew the truth about her and Rebecca's relationship. It wasn't uncommon during that time for gay relationships or sexual intercourse to be considered sodomy which was illegal in some states. Even if a person was found guilty of what we would call a homophobic attack, the perpetrator would likely be let off with a lighter sentence. In one case in the early 80s, a judge excused a light sentence for the murder of two gay men by saying, quote, I put prostitutes and queers at the same level, and I'd be hard-pressed to give someone life for killing a prostitute. That judge is a monster on his own level. With these fears in the back of her mind, Claudia met with the director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force Anti-Violence Project. He recommended coming out to the police as soon as possible. If she didn't, and the perpetrator was apprehended and the case went to trial, her testimony would be critical in their conviction. If she only came out once she was on the stand, then the jury would be made to believe that she was an unreliable witness and her character would be pulled apart. Imagine your sexuality being considered a factor in your character. After that discussion, Claudia realized that the only thing that would improve her situation was honesty. She got in touch with a gay positive lawyer who advised her that Pennsylvania was not one of the states where gay sex was illegal, and she backed up what Claudia had already been told. Being honest with the police was the best chance to get the case solved. Imagine being shot multiple times and having the love of your life murdered, and then needing to consult a lawyer about being honest with your relationship for fear of being arrested. The fact that there has ever been a situation where Claudia could have been seen as a criminal is downright appalling. The following day, she told Dawn that she was ready to talk and that she was ready to tell them everything. She started by saying, quote, I'm not embarrassed at all about what I'm going to tell you. Rebecca and I were lovers. I didn't tell you that at the beginning because I didn't know what the fact that I was a lesbian would mean to you. I didn't know what you would do with it. I've never been ashamed of Rebecca's and my relationship. It was wonderful and honorable, and we loved each other. Then she told them everything about how they had met, how they decided where to walk that day, and all of the hours leading up to the shooting. Don and his fellow investigator listened without saying a word. At the end of her story, they asked further questions about the man's appearance, how he had walked and what the gun looked like, Claudia could only remember that he was wearing gray track pants with a maroon stripe and that he didn't look like a hiker, though she couldn't remember why she thought that. Two days later, Claudia contacted them again and told them that she had remembered more about the face of the guy she had seen on the trail. She didn't mention that she had woken up to a mysterious vision of his face, right down to the most minute details. With the help of a skilled FBI sketch artist, Claudia was able to describe the man's shoulder-length shaggy hair, the shape of his nose and chin. After three hours, they had what Claudia described as a 75-85% to likeness of the man she believed was her partner's killer. Don took the drawing to the station and showed his fellow officers the composite, and they set to work identifying who the face belonged to. What Claudia didn't know was that while she was recovering in the hospital, Don had been working 18 to 20 hour days to find her killer. Her revelation about being in a relationship with Rebecca was helpful in identifying a motive, but it made no difference to him in terms of his motivation to find the killer. In fact, he had pretty much known that was the case since the first day. During the scene investigation, he had gone through Claudia and Rebecca's personal belongings where he found a book of lesbian erotica and journal entries about their relationship. While Don didn't have any world experience with lesbians, he was firm in his belief that every victim deserves justice. Even though he suspected Claudia wasn't being completely honest with him, he had activated every resource he had to find Rebecca's killer. Undercover officers had interviewed more than 200 people in the area surrounding the trail. A tip line had been set up to take information from the public and a reward for information had been offered. A couple of days before Claudia confessed to being in a relationship with Rebecca, an anonymous tip came in naming Stephen Roy Carr as a potential suspect. He became one of five main suspects in the investigation. However, when the composite sketch was compared to his photograph, he became the only suspect. Stephen Roy Carr was known as a vagrant or wanderer. At times, he lived in the woods around the area, and at others, he moved between couches at acquaintances' homes. Stephen had a record for larceny, and he had spent time in prison in Florida. He was also a known hunter. On May 23rd, Claudia was released from the hospital after making arrangements for how her medical bills would be covered. Five hours later, she was at home in Ithaca, preparing for her new normal, one without Rebecca and with lifelong scars from all that she had endured and survived. On that same day, 14 horses, 5 dog squads, 2 helicopters and numerous officers arrived at the Pine Grove Furnace State Park. They had one goal, to flush out a monster. In the days leading up to the manhunt, Stephen had visited some of his regular haunts. On the day of the murder, he had showed up at an acquaintance's home and told them that he had done a terrible thing, but refused to say what. That night, he went hunting with their 13-year-old son. When officers showed up to speak to the family, they compared bullet casings from the hunt to those found at the murder scene. They were a match. The family also owned a white cat whose fur was a match to the hair found on the beanie at the campsite. With that evidence, police were convinced that Stephen was their man. Now they just needed to find him. The day before the search, officers visited one of his family members to collect some personal items which would contain his scent. Dog teams fanned out into the woods in every direction, and every team found at least one spot where Stephen had once camped out, but there was no sign of the man himself. That night, with no definitive sign of Stephen, the composite was released to the media. The case had been extensively covered ever since the story broke and the picture was shown on every major broadcast. Some would later say you'd have to have been hiding under a rock to know about the woman who had been brutally murdered on the AT. They weren't far off, though, because the break in the case came from a section of society that doesn't listen to or watch the news. The Mennonites are a branch of the Christian Anabaptist denomination. The hallmark of the Mennonite faith is the practice of adult baptism as opposed to baptizing infants. They are a traditionally conservative people who reject most aspects of modern technology. They often live in close-knit communities and place a strong emphasis on family, pacifism, service, and living a simple modest lifestyle. While most Mennonite communities don't allow interference or visitors from the outside world, the Weaver family took their religion seriously. When a scraggly man floated down a stream onto their property and asked for assistance, they were only too happy to oblige. The man told them a heart-wrenching story and offered to work on their farm in exchange for food and board. The Weaver family paid no attention to the world outside their community and so they didn't realize that they had just opened their home to a murderer. For a week, Stephen Roy Carr stayed with the family and even attended their Sunday church service. Luckily for them, one of their neighbors was a slightly less devout believer. When he saw the composite on the news, he immediately recognized the face as belonging to the community's newest arrival. He contacted the police first thing the next morning. As soon as that call ended, a task force was set up to capture the fugitive. The caller told them exactly where Stephen was staying, including the layout of the house and surrounding area. Within an hour, SWAT teams in full tactical gear surrounded the farmhouse. Just as they were closing in, officers stopped a vehicle at the entrance to the street where a roadblock had been set up. The driver identified himself as a son of the Weaver family. When he was informed of the reason for the SWAT team's presence, he told them that Stephen was actually on his way to his own farm down the road. The entire operation to capture Stephen was now in a predicament, If they relocated to the other farm, they would have to arrive there before he did or he would make a run for it. While that was always a possibility during a manhunt, there was something else they had to consider. Stephen was driving with the 13-year-old son of the man who had been stopped at the roadblock. If Stephen felt cornered, he might take the boy hostage or worse, kill the boy there and then. There was little time to make a decision. The lead officer made the call that a couple of SWAT members should go to the other farmhouse and try to capture Stephen when the boy was free and clear of the vehicle. The man from the roadblock showed them a different route back to his home, and they took up their positions just moments before Stephen pulled in. As Stephen stepped out of the vehicle, an officer came out of the milkhouse with a shotgun pointed at his chest. He said, quote, "'You move, and you're dead.'" Stephen dropped to his knees and was arrested without further incident. He was read as Miranda writes and waived his right to a lawyer before being taken to the local police to be interviewed. Finally, the police had their man. Stephen made no secret of the fact that he lived in the woods around the AT. He told them that he survived by fishing and trapping and that he often carried a rifle for hunting. Then it came time to discuss the events of Friday the 13th. Stephen told the police that he had woken up that morning to find that his gun and other personal belongings had been stolen in the night. How convenient. When he was asked if he had seen anybody else on the trail that day, he said he had seen two girls at a campsite where he had been sleeping in a shelter. He told them the same story about talking to one of the women while she was completely naked. He said that soon after the interaction, the women had gotten dressed and left. Then he added, quote, I never saw them again. One of the officers told Stephen that they had some good news for him. He said, quote, We recovered some of your stolen property. It was found at the scene of a murder. After that, Stephen began to cry, quote, Why does this always happen to me? I left the trail. I slept at my aunt's all day. My gun was stolen. He told the officers that he had only learned about the murders when he watched the news and that he wasn't involved. But the officers had one more ace up their sleeve. They told Stephen that one of his intended victims had lived. The news came as a shock to Stephen, and all of a sudden, his story changed. He told the officers that the shooting was an accident. He thought he had seen a deer in his sight, so he shot it. But after five shots, he heard screaming, so he ran away and buried his gun. It was an admission of guilt, but not culpability, and officers knew it wasn't the whole story. So they decided on a different approach. Stephen agreed to show officers where the weapon was buried, and during the car ride over, they bantered with him. One asked him, quote, Did you really see them kissing? After that, Stephen went on a tirade about his disgust at the thought of men kissing men and women kissing women, and he made one fateful admission. He said that he had seen, quote, The girls eating each other out. That single statement was Stephen's undoing. See, apart from kissing as they walked, the women hadn't engaged in any sexual activity until they made camp that evening. Which means that any claim that Stephen made about seeing a deer or not knowing it was humans he was shooting at couldn't be true. If he had seen any serious sexual activity... Then he knew exactly where they were in the forest, before he shot them and knew for sure that they weren't deer. Stephen didn't realize his mistake and they all carried on to where he buried the weapon. Right where he said he left it, the police recovered a twenty-two caliber rifle wrapped in plastic under a tree stump. The weapon was later precisely matched to the bullet casings found near the hideout where the killer had targeted Claudia and Rebecca. When Stephen returned to the station, he was charged with murder and attempted murder.
0: With Lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky! Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: A week later, Claudia was called back to Pennsylvania to formally identify her partner's killer in a lineup. It was the first time she was going to see him since the attack. Not only did she have to look Steven in the eye, she also had to close her eyes and listen to the men in the lineup as they talked so she could identify the voice of the person she believed had tried to kill her. Claudia identified Stephen correctly in both instances. She was then taken to an interview room and asked further questions by the investigators. This time, they asked her specifically about the timeline of events after they arrived at the campsite. She wasn't quite sure what they meant until they told her that Stephen claimed he had seen the women, in his own words, eat each other out. Claudia acknowledged that they had engaged in oral sex in the moments before they were shot. With that statement, Stephen's defense of the shooting being an accident was put to bed and a date for trial was set. Over the coming months, both the prosecution and the defense appeared at a number of pre-trial hearings to determine what evidence could and could not be used in the case. After the case broke in the media, there was a lot of commentary about whether Stephen had really shot the women because of homophobia, or whether it was actually for another less sensational reason. All of these unhelpful and harmful attempts to downplay the sexuality component of the case were cleared up during the hearings when Stephen's lawyer showed their hand during their cross-examination of the witnesses. Claudia was the first to give her testimony. The prosecution walked through the events on the day of the murder as well as the details of her relationship with Rebecca. From the outset, their intention was to normalize the fact that Rebecca and Claudia were in a lesbian relationship so that it couldn't be twisted and turned against them by the defense. Then it was time for the cross-examination. If there had been a question in anyone's mind about whether the defense would try to sensationalize or dramatize the nature of the women's relationship... It was quickly confirmed. The defense's line of questioning was primarily focused on the intimate details of Claudia and Rebecca's relationship. They were clearly aiming to use their sexual orientation as a tool in their defense strategy, and they peppered Claudia with intrusive questions about her and Rebecca's private life. Stephen's lawyer repeatedly asked if the two women had been feeling or fondling each other after they realized someone else was at the campsite with them that morning. He asked if they deliberately held hands when they walked past Stephen as they left, and whether Claudia had taken her clothes off at any point that day. He even asked Claudia to explain exactly what oral sex was. I guess we might want to feel sorry for the poor guy's wife. Then he asked three questions in quick succession. Quote, At what point during the afternoon, to your knowledge, did either you or Rebecca put on a show for my client? Quote, At what time during that day did you or, to the best of your knowledge, Rebecca intentionally tease my client and, quote, At any point during the entire day did either you or, to the best of your knowledge, Rebecca purposefully reveal any parts of your body to my client? Their attempt to make the relationship the centerpiece of the narrative was exactly what the prosecution had predicted. Claudia was well prepared for their questions, and she reinforced that they had a loving relationship. And just like any other couple, they were enjoying the outdoors, showing each other affection and enjoying each other's company. The last thing they expected was to be shot at or killed because someone else found their love mortally offensive. When the trooper who had spoken to Stephen during the car ride to find the buried murder weapon took the stand, he was asked to recall their conversation. He told the court about how Stephen had revealed that he saw the women in the midst of intercourse before the so-called accidental shooting. During cross-examination, the defense lawyer attempted to persuade the court that his client meant that he had seen them in the morning rather than the afternoon. Stephen also claimed that the women had purposefully provoked his actions by having sex in front of him. When he saw what they were doing, he was infuriated and driven to murder. In other words, he was using the tried-and-tested defense of gay panic to explain his actions. The only problem is that gay panic doesn't exist. It's called homophobia, and it's not an excuse to end someone's life. When that angle didn't seem to go over well with the judge, the lawyer attempted to use Steven's traumatic childhood to explain why he had been driven to kill. He explained that his rage was caused by the fact that Stephen had been raped by a man in prison and sexually abused as a child. He had been the target of bullies at school and seemed unable to make friends. As an adult, he had been largely rejected by women and had never been in a romantic relationship. According to Stephen's lawyer, all of that would be enough to make anyone homicidal at the sight of two women making love. When the pre-trial hearings were done, it wasn't clear which way the judge was going to rule. They could have ruled that the nature of Rebecca and Claudia's relationship was irrelevant, which is what the prosecution was arguing. Or they could rule that the sight of two women making love was reasonable provocation for murder. While Claudia and Rebecca's families awaited a ruling, they received word that Stephen's lawyer had offered the district attorney a deal. Stephen would accept a conviction of first-degree murder and a sentence of life without the possibility of parole in exchange for the district attorney withdrawing the request for the death penalty and not pursuing the attempted murder charges for Claudia. While the DA is ultimately responsible for accepting or rejecting any settlement offers, he decided it was best to speak with Claudia and the family of Rebecca before any choice was made. It was a difficult decision to make. On one hand, the offer indicated that the defense knew that the evidence from the scene and witness statements proved that Stephen was guilty. It also indicated that they knew they weren't going to be able to talk their way out of a conviction for first-degree murder. On top of that, a life sentence in Pennsylvania means exactly that. The convict will remain in prison for the rest of their natural life. But on the other side, the plea agreement would mean no justice for Claudia, and technically, Stephen wouldn't be pleading guilty. He would just be accepting a conviction of first-degree murder. By law, Stephen would not actually be considered guilty, which meant he could appeal certain aspects of the conviction at a later date accepting the deal would also remove the option to pursue the death penalty. They also had to consider that the jury might not go their way if they took their chances with a trial. If even one of the jurors shared Steven's homophobic views, the most he would get would be life without parole, which is the same as they would achieve through the plea agreement. And with the level of homophobia being demonstrated before the case even reached the courtroom, there was every possibility that the ruling wouldn't be in their favor. Rebecca's murder and the attempted murder of Claudia occurred in 1988. That was just over 10 years after homosexuality was no longer technically classified as a mental illness. Hardly enough time for attitudes and opinions to change enough to feel confident. For many then, and even still today, homosexuality or being queer is still thought of as a disease or something that needs to be cured. In many countries and states, it's legal to force people to undergo conversion therapy to supposedly correct their sexuality. This harmful practice is often disseminated by deeply ingrained societal prejudices or, of course, religion. Somehow, people are made to believe that a person's sexual orientation can be changed from homosexual or bisexual to heterosexual by using psychological, physical, or spiritual interventions. Keep in mind that many of the people forced to undergo these procedures or treatments are children. Also, people who are forced to undergo conversion therapy are twice as likely to take their own life afterwards. With this context, it came as little surprise that the headlines surrounding the case were also sensationalized. One headline published by the Ithaca Journal read, quote, Women teased me, Mountain Man testifies. First, Stephen didn't actually testify second he's not a mountain man he's a murderer and third people get teased every day it doesn't justify murder that framing merely deflected attention from the perpetrator and onto the victims in many of the articles claudia was referred to simply as rebecca's ithaca lover their deep and loving relationship was trivialized and objectified for what we would call clickbait today That headline prompted an outpouring of support for Claudia from friends, family, and allies. Three days after it was published, a protest was held outside the office of the Ithaca Journal. A petition called for the correction of the erroneous headline, as well as an apology for the way in which the article downplayed the seriousness of the crime. The Ithaca Journal never retracted the headline, but did agree to report the case more respectfully going forward. Sure... On June 23rd, the DA announced that Claudia and the family of Rebecca had agreed to accept the terms of the plea deal. Unsurprisingly, Stephen's lawyer immediately filed multiple appeals on two main aspects of the case. Their first appeal was on grounds that when Stephen was arrested, he wasn't immediately told that he was under suspicion of being involved in Rebecca's murder. During the 80s, Stephen had been arrested for robbing elderly people who were living in retirement communities in Florida. During one robbery, he stabbed an 80-year-old woman in her own home. He told the police that she had lunged at him and then accidentally impaled herself on the knife he was holding in front of him. He was sentenced to prison, but when he was released on parole, he managed to flee the state illegally. That meant there was a warrant for his arrest, which is what the Pennsylvania police used to arrest him when he was first apprehended for Rebecca's murder. When they took him to the station, they began questioning him about his recent movements and whether he had been involved in anything in the woods. That's when he confessed to having shot Rebecca and revealed where the gun was hidden. Technically, he should have been told he was under suspicion of murder when he was taken in for questioning, which is absolutely not true. If you’re arrested for anything, and you waive your right to counsel, authorities can talk to you about anything. If you then give them information regarding another crime you committed, that’s on you. Unsurprisingly, the second appeal was that the sexual nature of Claudia and Rebecca’s relationship should be admissible in Steven’s defense. This time the lawyer went so far as to say that Stephen had gone to the woods to escape the quote, "evils of the world such as lesbianism, sex, and women." So somehow that meant it was cool to murder people, despite the fact that other people were freely able to go into the woods and do whatever they wanted. It wasn't his private property. In the judge's ruling, he noted, quote, Defendant's motives in taking to the wilderness are subject to debate. He was, after all, a fugitive from justice. However, it may be true as defendant's counsel suggests, he chose a primeval setting to escape the evils of the world. At the first glance of what he contends was evil, however, he eagerly pursued it for a better view. We think the evidence suggests that the two women were the ones attempting to escape. They sought the solitude of a location thought pristine. Many may frown upon what they did, but they broke no law and only pursued activities in which they had a right to engage. Defendant, on the other hand, brought an attitude and disposition that would be considered evil in any civilized circumstance. People seem to live constantly in an era when one group or another feel justified in ending human life for reasons thought to be sufficient. History is replete with examples of utmost cruelty been inflicted upon those termed heretic, witches, sodomites, and the like. A person who intentionally kills a stranger should not be able to expect lessened punishment because of revulsion or disapproval of the victim's conduct. The judge rejected both appeals and the terms of the settlement agreement were confirmed. After the hearing, Claudia made her first ever statement to the media. Quote, My name is Claudia Brenner. It seems to me that a life sentence with no parole in a maximum security prison, while not compensating for our tremendous loss and pain, is the appropriate response to a nightmare that nothing can ever make right. Rebecca and I were lovers. Nothing about who we are or our love for each other could be considered motivation for the outrageous, inhumane violence that Stephen perpetrated against us. While I'm angry that the notion of provocation could even surface in this case, that someone could suggest that who we were and what we were doing could reasonably prompt someone to kill us, I am glad that the law is clear and that there was no provocation. On top of Claudia dealing with her own recovery and the loss of her partner as well as the legal proceedings, she was also forced to confront the dark underbelly of homophobia which the case had brought to the surface. While bias and judgment had been a constant force in her life before the murder, it became inescapable in the aftermath. She was subjected to a level of public scrutiny and prejudice that extended far beyond personal tragedy. Her grief became a public spectacle where the righteousness of the killer's perspective was debated and even justified by some. Inside and outside of the court, Claudia had to defend her and Rebecca's love, their identity, and their right to exist free of violence and judgment. All of that trauma had a deep effect on Claudia's mental well-being. Even after her release from the hospital and physically recovering from her injuries, she struggled when left alone. She was consumed with fear, paranoia, and grief, and she spent years in therapy coming to terms with both the loss of Rebecca and the psychological impact of her own injuries. Then there was the financial strain. On top of her huge medical bills, Claudia also had to pay for the ongoing medical expenses associated with the attack. She needed extensive dental treatment as at least one of the bullets had shattered a number of her teeth. There were follow-up doctor's appointments and post-surgical expenses and therapy, and that's not even considering the cost of hiring a lawyer to represent her through the trial. Claudia went on to write a book about her experience titled Eight Bullets. In the book, she shares a poem by the same name. You can find a link to the book on Amazon in the video's description. She completed her studies and began working as an architect as well as becoming an activist against anti-gay violence. Even to this day, Claudia continues to speak about gay rights in the United States and around the world. She has given talks to law enforcement and social agencies in an effort to promote understanding and acceptance of the LGBTQ community and to advocate for effective measures to combat anti-gay violence. In 2015, a documentary about the crime was released called In the Hollow. In the same year, Stephen Roy Carr's lawyer ran for a seat on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania as a Republican. Even after 30 years, the tactics he used in the defense of Stephen's actions came back to bite him. Turns out people weren't that impressed that he had attempted to get a murderer off by saying that the sight of lesbian women having intercourse would be enough to make anyone homicidal. I say good riddance. In the end, Claudia and Rebecca's story is a testament to the strength it takes to confront a monster, not just in the form of an individual with a rifle, but anyone who chooses to weaponize their prejudice. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.